Welcome to episode 13 of Sentinel of Liberty, a Captain America podcast. I'm Grant Richter, and I'll be your host as we revisit the classic exploits of the Star Spangled Avenger. Today's exciting adventure comes from Captain America number 261 from September of 1981. Written by J.M. DeMatteis, penciled by Mike Zeck, inked by Quickdraw Studios, lettered by Jim Novak, colored by Warfield and Shield, and edited by Jim Salakrup. So grab your Captain America Dakota ring and let's jump into action! depicts Captain America blocking gunfire with his shield as a figure in a blue and yellow costume swings into the scene, declaring brashly, Just hop back on that plane, hero man. California's my turf. The cover blurb reads, Together again for the first time, Captain America and the man called Nomad. The issue opens with Steve Rogers taking in a few drinks at a Brooklyn Heights tavern with his friend and neighbor Josh Cooper and his sometime crime-fighting partner Sam Wilson. After a few pictures of Sangria, the jolly trio stumble outside for some fresh air, only to find themselves witness to a mugging outside of a nearby alley. Josh runs to get the police, while Sam and Steve take a more direct approach. Even the fighting prowess of the two experienced adventurers can be limited by inebriation, though, and the duo find themselves just barely triumphing over a couple of common hoodlums, prompting Steve to swear off the sauce. The police arrive to take the muggers into custody, then admonish Steve and Sam to leave the crime fighting to the professionals. The next morning, Steve gets a call from Hank McCoy, alias The Beast, telling him that an urgent telegram has arrived for him at Avengers Mansion. Shaking off their lingering hangovers, Steve and Sam head to the mansion as Captain America and the Falcon. As they arrive, a covert operative disguised as a bag lady informs her contact via communicator that the target has arrived, no doubt lured by the bait. Project Desecration has begun. When she disconnects, we learn that her contact is Kyle Decker, also known as the Ameridroid, who boasts of the vengeance he plans to wreak on Captain America. From off-panel, Decker's unseen mentor tells him, Be silent, my pupil. These melodramatics are both distasteful and time-wasting. There is much work to be done. Inside the mansion, while Cap and the Beast run through a training routine, Falcon reads the telegram and reveals that Galactic Pictures is making a movie of Cap's adventures and has invited him to Hollywood to be part of the pre-film publicity. The Vision enters the training room and says, Excuse the interruption, Captain, but there is something on the morning news that you should find most intriguing. The news segment reveals that an unknown man has adopted Steve's former crime-fighting identity of Nomad and has been waging a one-man war in California on the terrorist group known as the Nihilist Order. After rescuing a Hollywood actress, this new Nomad gives a brief interview and declares, I've made the move westward in order to stop these noxious devils, and I won't rest until I've seen their vile breed stamped out. Steve reminisces about how once, having lost faith in himself and his country, he gave up being Captain America 
and adopted the identity of nomad, man without a country. It was only the death of a young man who tried to fill his role as Captain America that convinced Steve to once again take up the mantle of the Star-Spangled Avenger. Curious and concerned, Captain America heads to California to investigate. Cap lands at LAX almost 24 hours later and is greeted immediately by an attack from two members of the Nihilist Order. Cap counterattacks, but is literally bumped out of the way by Nomad, who swings in, declaring, Out of the way, old-timer! I've got a job to do! Nomad leaps recklessly into the jeep, being driven by the terrorists, causing it to crash into a pair of oncoming police cars. The Nihilists make a break for it on foot, but are stopped by Cap himself. A news crew shows up within moments, and the same reporter from the earlier story gives Nomad all of the credit for the Nihilist apprehension in his broadcast. The production assistant on the biopic, Wally Lumbago, arrives and tells Cap, It's a shame the press doesn't go nuts for you the way they go nuts for Nomad. We could have had some outrageous publicity to kick this thing off. While Cap is distracted, though, Nomad abruptly leaves, thinking to himself, We'll meet again soon enough, hero. Just be patient. A short time later, Decker watches the video feed from a hidden camera in Wally's limo as Cap is driven to the movie studio. When Decker brags again about the trap that has been set into motion, he is chastised once more by his mentor, a figure whose face is hidden beneath the hood of a voluminous green robe. The enigmatic teacher tells Decker it's time for his therapy and leads him through the hallways of their headquarters, only to come across one of the nihilist guards asleep at her post. The teacher attacks the guard into wakefulness, demanding of her, What is the true purpose of existence? Overwhelmed by both his attack and her obvious reverence of him, the guard tells him that their order's purpose is to serve him and to promote the nihilist cause, to find true peace in the leveling of life. The hooded leader rewards her with the briefest moment of apparent tenderness before tossing her violently aside. The teacher takes Decker to a chamber that contains a massive technological chair connected to various forms of high-tech machinery. When Decker expresses his lingering apprehension for the room and its strange device, his mentor reminds the Meridroid of his loyalty to the Nihilist leader. Through the teacher's exposition, we learn that Decker was once a spy during World War II in the employ of the Red Skull. Assigned to sabotage the making of a wartime film about Captain America, Decker was foiled by Cap and Bucky. Though sentenced to death by the Skull for his failure, Decker escaped and went into seclusion in Newfoundland. The leader tells Decker that Captain America later tracked Decker down and forcibly transferred his consciousness into the gigantic body of the Ameridroid. Decker, his mind shattered, was found by the leader and given new purpose as a member of the Nihilist Order. As Decker is lulled into a hypnotic state by the technological chair, the leader reinforces his people's hatred of Captain America, declaring, It will do you no good just to kill the good captain, will it, Decker? No, first he must be thoroughly humiliated. Over at Galactic Pictures, Cap and Wally join the movie's producer, Leonard Spellman, and the actor cast in the lead role, Jason Stade, 
on stage for a press conference. After Cap fields a barrage of inane questions, Leonard leads everyone to another part of the studio for a photo op. Along the way, a reporter asks Cap if he thinks his brand of patriotism is outdated. He responds, as long as there is an American dream for our people to reach for, I'll do my utmost to embody that dream, to stand as a symbol of hope in better tomorrows. Leonard leads the group to a 25-foot-tall mechanized replica of Captain America, supposedly a promotional prop for the movie. As Leonard encourages the photographers and cameramen to get plenty of shots of Cap and his giant double, Leonard himself is literally shot by the reporter who had asked questions of Cap just moments ago. Shouting the rhetoric of the Nihilist Order, the phony reporter flees before being tackled by the Star-Spangled Avenger. She feigns helplessness and contrition to lure Cap into the path of another assault, though Cap blocks gunfire from the helicopter above with his shield. The would-be assassin attempts to escape again, climbing a rope ladder to the helicopter, but Cap hurls his shield, severing the ladder. Cap catches the woman before she can make what would have been at least a crippling landing, but his shield inexplicably goes wild, flying toward a bystander with lethal speed. Nomad swings in to save the day, but comes up short as Cap makes an amazing leap to snag the shield himself. Cap takes off after the terrorists, while the reporter who had been covering Nomad's story so far focuses on aspirational attention on the blue and gold-clad adventurer, who has paused to plant a non-consensual kiss on a young woman. Cap springboards off a couple of nearby buildings, grabbing what remains of the helicopter's ladder. Nomad grabs the assassin's fallen handgun and begins firing in the direction of the helicopter, shouting, Hang steady, Cap! I'll stop those bloodthirsty goons! Despite his proclamation, however, what Nomad actually succeeds at doing is firing a spray of bullets that force Cap to abandon the escaping helicopter, with only an acrobatic landing saving the Avenger from a fatal fall. A short time later, after the EMTs have patched up Leonard and the cops have taken the assassin into custody, Cap confronts Nomad and thanks him for his help, much to Nomad's surprise. As Nomad swings away, though, Cap thinks to himself that he's determined to find out what the other man's true motives really are. Somewhere nearby, Nomad enters the Nihilist Order's secret headquarters and apologizes to the teacher for his failure to discredit Captain America. We learn that Nomad has been attempting to sabotage Cap using a magnetic device to make Cap's shield fly dangerously off course and setting up other obstacles that Cap easily dodged. The teacher strikes down Nomad for his excuses and declares, Mark me well, fool! This is but a minor setback, because when we are done, not only will Captain America be dead, but all of his countrymen will spit on his grave! Next issue, the face behind Nomad's mask, the Captain America Day Parade, and the death of a legend. So, if you guys follow me on Twitter, you may remember that a few weeks ago I started reading my daughter the original 1960s Amazing Spider-Man stories as a bedtime story. And I really, really like it. And one of the things that I do when I read to her is I do the voices of the characters. So I've got 
a pretty distinct voice for Peter Parker, for Aunt May, for Jonah, for Flash Thompson, for most villains, though they do overlap. I'm still working on kind of getting my general authority figure voice down, and I'm having a little trouble with women's voices, but I'm working more on inflection than I am with the tone, I guess. But it's still a ton of fun. And so I am enjoying that so much that that inspired me to want to start um, just kind of uh, adding voices to the synopsis of the show. And I have a lot of fun doing it. I don't know how successful I am at the voices. I am anything but a professional voice actor. Uh, I don't have a very good range. But I, I had fun doing it, and I hope you guys thought it was interesting. Uh, I, thought, I hope you thought it was enter- entertaining. Uh, I'd love to hear from you one way or another. If, if this was fun, let me know, and I'll keep doing it. Uh, but if this was just raking nails on the chalkboard to get through, please let me know, and I'll cut out my shenanigans. But I am um, doing more to spice up the show in general, just beyond the voices. I am using some different hardware when I record. Um, I'm using a headset that cuts out a lot of background noise and the sound of me swallowing through my freakishly large Adam's apple. So you may hear a little pause here now and then, but you won't hear the gulp that uh, you guys had to suffer through in the past. I'm using some new software for the actual recording part. Um, And I think it's going to make a much better end product. The downside is it is taking me longer to do things as I'm kind of working out the kinks as to how the different software works. And since I'm using different hardware, I can't just record on my phone like I used to. So I'm actually having to sit down at my desk with my Chromebook to do this. So um, it may take me, the the episodes may be a little less frequent than they already were, which is kind of sad, but... I hope that the end result is worth the wait. All right, so on to the issue itself. So, uh, like I said, it opens in a bar, and I'm guessing it's like maybe at the like a precursor to the Tilted Kilt, if you're familiar with that establishment, uh, where we have a um, old young lady in a very tight top and a very short little kilt thing. Um, and then we have Steve and Josh and Sam hanging out and it is weird to see Steve Rogers drinking alcohol. And I think part of that is for me from the MCU, from the revelation that the super soldier serum heals him up so quick that alcohol doesn't take effect. But you also just don't think of Steve Rogers tossing down a few drinks and it is interesting that the alcohol actually affects him in this because again I'm used to the super soldier serum doing more for Steve and I know that in the maybe late 70s and in the 80s they were trying to downplay the fact that the serum made Steve more than human but it's still it's just interesting And this was also like a weird bit of universal synchronicity for me because it was around the time that I started recording this one that I decided, well, I'm going to cut alcohol from my diet altogether because I'm trying to avoid empty calories because I'm trying to get um, like the next step of my fitness evolution, whatever. So just seeing Steve going, well, 
no more drinking for me. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Um, and it's weird to see Steve and Sam get knocked around a bit by a couple muggers, which is pretty strange. But what I really liked best about the scene was Steve's friend, Josh. Josh is a sharp dresser. Josh is wearing a pair of uh, green slacks and a black turtleneck and then a green vest over the turtleneck. And Josh has very much a, he's got like a Richard Roundtree vibe going on. He's got kind of a Shaft-esque outfit. He's got the Shaft mustache. Josh just looks super, super cool. So I'm a big fan of that. My cat says hi. All right, so that was pages two through six. I'm going to go through here and read my notes. Page eight, my note says, I probably won't be trying for a vision voice ever again. Um, I am a huge fan of the vision. Uh, I used to run a vision blog called Unearthly Visions, and he's probably maybe my third favorite Avenger. Um, I do not have the baritone of my voice to do what I think the Vision's voice should sound like. In my head, Vision sounds like uh, Goliath from Gargoyles, Keith David. I do not have <laughs> I do not have that kind of vocal depth, but I like him so much that I had to at least give it a shot. And it's sad that he's only really in like one and a half panels in the whole book. But it's not an Avengers title, it's Captain America. Um, the other note I had was, I don't usually associate DeMatteis with humor. <laughs> which some of you may think is ironic. Because when I think of J.M. DeMatteis, I think of this book, which has elements of white supremacy pop up, uh, has people get tortured, um, has some pretty dark elements, and you know, has a lot of terrorism. There's some, some pretty dark elements in what's a very brightly colored comic. All right, sorry about that little technical difficulty. Anyway, um, so other than Captain America, what I most associate DeMatteis with is Craven's Last Hunt and the darker elements of the Clone Saga. I don't really uh, think about Justice League International very often. It's not really in my wheelhouse, but when I do remember that DeMatteis was a part of it, I usually figure, oh, well, you know, probably Giffen was in charge of the humor and DeMatteis was more in charge of the plotting. But then something like this issue comes along because, you know, just a little bit of tongue-in-cheek stuff. We have Galactic Studios instead of Universal Studios. And where we get the scene where Cap is watching the news story about Nomad saving the actress. The actress's name is Suzanne de Imbalb. So Suzanne de Imbalb, I'm guessing that was probably maybe a parody of Suzanne Summers who was very popular at the time and often played characters that weren't particularly bright, but that's pretty funny. Um, so yeah, I guess Dave Tance was a little funnier than I gave him credit for. Like I said, I don't really, I uh, wasn't a really big fan of the JLI, but yeah, it is good stuff. Um, okay. So on page nine, my note says ultimate cap. So what we have at the very top of the page is I don't know if Zek forgot to draw them or if the collective of inkers, what were they called again? Quick Draw Studios, forgot to ink them. But Cap has no wings on the side of his mask, which is looks very much like Ultimate Cap. 
And that's something else I wanted to mention. I don't know exactly what Quickdraw Studios is. I don't know if that was an actual company that got hired out to do inking work or if it was like when a whole bunch of inkers got handed the reins to ink a comic, they just would peel it as like many hands, many hands. But I don't know, because there are some panels in this that look better than others. And there are some that look a little rough and some that just have details left out. So I have to guess that, you know, the guys at Quick Draw Studios, if it was a company, some were more talented than others. Um, so page 10, my note says, lightning bolt, no. So we have the scene here where the two people from the Nihilist Order come charging into the movie studio on a Jeep. And on the front of the Jeep is the Nihilist Order logo, which is a great big N and a great big O with a lightning bolt through it. So this is like lightning bolt, no. So it's just like they're declaring no to society or whatever, which I think is pretty silly. But I think it's intentionally silly, so that's okay. So page 11, um, my note says, inkers really do make all the difference. So we have the top of the page. Um, we have uh, one of the terrorists is shooting at Cap where uh, Nomad is jumping into the scene. And it looks just kind of rough. Like Cap's mask is all wonky. And then on page 12... Um, there's a scene with Nomad standing around while the reporters come rushing in and Nomad himself looks mm, like one dimensional, like he's a cardboard cutout standing in front of people. So again, um, inkers really, really do enhance an artist's work. Like I like Mike Zek. His work looks a lot better a few issues from now where they settle on a permanent inker. This quick draw studio stuff is not particularly flattering for his work. And then I also have a note of Wally Lumbago. So I didn't know what Lumbago was. I've heard of it. I thought it was like a foot thing. <laughs> Apparently it means like a pain in the lower back. So Wally's name is Wally pain in the, in the Wally pain in the back, which is pretty funny. And the voice I did for Wally uh, was supposed to be like upper class snob, but Wally looks like, what I think the general zeitgeist of what a California dude was supposed to be in the early eighties where he's like really fit and he's got kind of big moose feathery hair and he's got like run really tiny shorts. And I think he's just supposed to be the stereotypical super fit, annoying California guy. Uh, <laughs> Page 13 has got my favorite panel in the whole book. So we have, Cap and Wally in the back of the limo that's taking them to the studio. And we have this lady and my note for the lady says fruit stripes, gum are lady arcade. So the driver, she's wearing a jacket with wide lime green and white stripes. And she's wearing a kind of lemony green button down shirt underneath it with a white polka dot tie white tie with yellow polka dots and then there's a green cap that looks like maybe the kind of cap that you see you know like when they have a, a picture of like an old-timey golfer like the, with the scottish getup 
It looks like one of those hats, only maybe it doesn't have the poof ball on top, but I don't know because the top of the panel is cut off. It is like the most bonkers outfit that I can't imagine. They must have made this lady wear this outfit because there's no way this lady said, hey, well, I'm going to wear this to work today because it just looks ridiculous, but I, I absolutely love it. And my note for page 14 says, it's a cult. So here we have our first appearance, really, of the teacher, the mentor, the leader of the Nihilist Order. And like I said, he's in a big green robe, and he's got a hood up, and his face is always hidden in shadow, and he's got one of those long things that holds a cigarette sticking out of his mouth all the time. And... Uh, if you haven't read, if you've read the story before, you know who the leader is. They don't show his face here. Um, I know who it is because I've read ahead. But even if you haven't read ahead, I'd like to think that the voice I did for him maybe gives a clue who he is. Um, but we'll find out next issue for sure. But so he walks up on the guard and she's asleep and he makes her spout all this rhetoric and just the level of just oh this devotion this lady has for him after he like literally he slapped her across the face backhanded her across the face pick her up threw her across the room where she slams into the wall and then she's like you know you know we're only we only exist to follow you you're the greatest it's super creepy and like she kind of lets herself get folded into a hug by him and it's super gross but yeah it's for sure a cult mentality um Page 15, so here we have, we've had a couple panels now of Decker, who is the Ameridroid. And the problem is, is that the perspective doesn't really give an exact clue as to how tall he is, because we have the leader walking next to him, and let's assume that the leader is about six feet tall. And in some panels, he comes up to Decker's elbow, and in some panels, he looks like maybe he comes up to his waist. And in the flashback shot of Captain America fighting the America Droid, it looks like Cap is small enough he would maybe come up to the to the America Droid's knee. So with a character that big, who looks just like a normal-sized guy, it's hard to really get a good perspective. You can't say, well, maybe, maybe he's real far behind, or maybe he's real up close, or something. It's really hard to tell, but it's interesting. I think the concept of the Ameridroid is, it's super Bronze Age, but it's still pretty interesting that this guy uh, who was, you know, tasked with destroying Cap gets his mind transferred into a giant robot version of Cap. It really sounds kind of like Silver Age Superman kind of story, but it's interesting. Um, and... I have not read the first appearance of the Ameridroid story yet. I started to, and I'm like, wow, there's so much backstory that's also wrapped up in this. Something to do with S.H.I.E.L.D. and and, uh, and Nick Fury and the Countess um, and all that other stuff. And some other lady who's supposed to be from Cap's past. I'm like, no, I'm just going to make it part of the 70s read-through that I'm working on. But they have, you know, the skull tells them that... Captain America forced Decker to transfer his consciousness into the Maridroid body. I have to assume that's mistaken. <laughs> well, it's a you know it's a lie. Um, I'm sure it was more Decker trying to transfer his own consciousness into, consciousness into the Maridroid, or maybe the Red Skull did. I don't know. But it's still pretty cool. 
and I am looking forward to eventually going back and reading that story. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more, bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Welcome back for Man Out of Time. Now, in this episode's Man Out of Time segment, we are going to be starting Steve Englehart's run on the Avengers from 1972. And Englehart's Avengers run actually began in Avengers number 105, but Cap is not in that issue. Uh, They reference that Cap is dealing with some personal business, which we'll talk about shortly. But we're going to start with issue 106. Uh, It has a cover with Iron Man laying on some kind of technological workbench, it looks like, and his armor's all shattered, and the Black Panther saying, Iron Man slain, but there was no one in this tunnel but us. And Captain America says, that means one of us is the killer. And Hawkeye says, but who? And the cover blurb says, a traitor stalks among us. So the issue opens with, uh, oh, by the way, it's, uh, written by Englehart, art by Rich Buckler and George Tuska. I'm guessing Buckler penciling and Tuska inking. Oh, uh, no, nope. uh, I guess they were co-pencilers because Dave Cockrum's the inker, which is pretty interesting. John Costanza's letter and Roy Thomas's editor. So we open with, in the Avengers Mansion, with the Vision sitting around in this big old techno chair, looking all emo, probably listening to My Chemical Romance or something. And Captain America walks in. He's like, hey, Vision, this crazy thing just happened. I fought this version of me from the 1950s. And are you listening? Are you paying attention? And the Vision's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just so sad because I just realized that I have no emotions. Because in issue 105, uh, the Avengers minus Cap went to the Savage Land looking for Quicksilver and they fought the Savage Land Mutates, and there was this lady there named Lorelai who can hypnotize men by controlling their emotions, but she wasn't able to control the vision, so it makes him all super upset that his technological emotions don't work the same way that human biological emotions do. So he's all brooding, and he stayed behind while the Avengers went to look for Quicksilver. But then Rick Jones busts in and says, I'm not going to be your sidekick anymore, Cap, because you told me to stay behind for my own good. So I went and hooked up with Captain Marvel. See? And he clangs the Negabands together. And I don't think he's actually switching places with Captain Marvel, but you can see kind of this ghostly image of Captain Marvel maybe in the negative zone. But something about that makes Cap kind of fall out, and he has this kind of hallucination. And it's not quite a flashback, but it looks like it. Because it looks like the fight from the um, uh, Steranko issues of Captain America that were published a few uh, years prior to this, where they're fighting Hydra in the cemetery and Rick is the new Bucky. 
and they're fighting some Hydra guys, and um, the Hydra guys think that they've killed Cap and Rick with this big laser blaster thing, but they just knocked them out for a second, and Cap and Rick wake up just as the Hydra guys are running off, and the Hydra guys are saying that they've captured the Avengers. But then Cap wakes up in real time and says, well, this is weird because I remember that fight and the fight ended before this. Like we let them think that we were, that I was dead and then the fight was over. But in my vision that I've just had, my, um, the fight kept going. So, you know, this is weird. Let's see what's going on. And by the way, we also have the vision wearing that necklace that the Grim Reaper gave him a couple Uh, issues ago that we talked about on the last Man Out of Time, and it's weird that nobody comments on it. It's like, oh, there's this big skull and crossbow necklace that you're wearing that looks a lot like one of our arch foes, Vision. Nothing strange about that, though, so carry on. So we switch scenes, and the Avengers are going through an alley somewhere, like in New York, and the Black Panther's leading them. And what they say is that uh, an informant has told them that they heard that somebody who looks like Quicksilver was this way. So they're going through the alley, but then Hawkeye, who's still wearing his weird um, kind of miniskirt dress, falls through a trap, like someone dug a hole and put some planks over it, and Hawkeye stepped on the planks and fell through. So they've fallen down, and uh, Iron Man and the Scarlet Witch and the Black Panther are going to have to go in after him. So we switch back to Cap, and he is now in the cemetery from his kind of memory flashback vision thing. And he remembers how um, Madame Hydra, a.k.a. the Viper, eventually seemingly died, and the fight stopped there. But just being in the cemetery triggers the memory again. And now in his kind of sort of memory, he and Rick have tracked the Hydra agents to... Um, kind of a rundown area of New York, I guess. And uh, let's see, this the the Lower East Side. It's a bad neighborhood for local Hydra headquarters. And they go to this rundown building, and they go inside, and they fall through some wooden boards, and they fall down. But then they fall in the the sub basement is actually it looks like a Hydra headquarters, and they see this elevator, and so they go into the elevator. But the elevator's a trap. It doesn't go down. It actually works like the trash compactor in Star Wars. But Rick rips out the wires and and hot wires the, does something with the wires where he hot wires them together and boom, that makes the door pop open. And now there's Hydra guys and Cap and Rick are going to run out and fight the Hydra guys. And But just then Cap snacks, snaps out of his flashback memory thing and he goes, huh, that was weird. Let's go see if I can find that that building from my vision. So we flash, we move over back to the rest of the Avengers, and Iron Man and Scarlet Witch and Black Panther have gone down the hole after Hawkeye, and they find this tunnel, and they go in the tunnel, but Hawkeye is trying to kill the Black Panther, and the Black Panther knocks him out for a minute, but then the lights go out, and when the lights come on, Hawkeye is back to normal, but now Iron Man's trying to kill everybody, and then the lights go out again, and this time Iron Man's back to normal, but Black Panther's trying to kill everybody. And then the lights go out one more time, and now all four Avengers are standing around not trusting each other. And they hear a 
they hear a voice and Iron Man's like, oh, I know what's going on. I've been through this before. And sure enough, it's the Space Phantom. If you're not familiar with the Space Phantom, he has the ability to switch places with someone. He puts the real person in like a version of Limbo for a minute. He copies their appearance. He takes their place. And then he switches back and forth. And he's really good at doing that too. So Descent. And usually the Space Phantom is a really goofy looking villain. But the way uh, Buckler or Tuska draws him, he looks really kind of creepy cool he looks kind of demonic he looks kind of like a goat demon almost he's got like star fox hair and he's got like this really long face and he's got those big eyes but they've got these really heavy brows and there's a lot of just the way the nose and the lips and the chin and the cheekbones and the shading and the ears are all done it looks really great i'll I'll post a picture of it on twitter and they're like ha ha Avengers, now I will destroy you. And then somebody walks up behind the space and he goes, no, we will destroy you. And the Grim Reaper has teamed up with the Space Phantom. Next issue, re-enter the vision in Captain America as shock follows shock. So this was pretty awesome. I love, one of the things I like the best about Englehart's run on the Avengers is he focuses really heavily on the vision. And I love the vision. I think the vision's great. He's one of my favorite characters. So having a lot of story arcs that revolve around him is a lot of fun and uh, kind of balancing that with a story arc that jumps back and forth between focusing on the Vision and focusing on Captain America is pretty fantastic. So let's see what happens next issue. Issue 107 has a cover with a gigantic looking Grim Reaper fighting the Avengers. It's one of those metaphorical covers. And the Grim Reaper is saying, So you costume killers dare to defy me once again. Well, this time will be your last. And the cover blurb says, All new and all great. The Grim Reaper is back and he's not alone. And it's by Engelhart. The art this time is by Jim Starlin and George Tuska with Cochran inking. Um, D. Vladimir is letterer. Glennis Ween is color. And Roy Thomas is editor. So it opens with a shot of the Black Panther, the Scarlet Witch, Iron Man, and Hawkeye in a stasis field being held by the Space Phantom and the Grim Reaper. It looks really good, very Starlin-esque. Um, and there, and Grim Reaper is like, well, let's kill them now. And then the Space Phantom says, no, let's get them all together and kill them because that's because I'm lazy. But, you know, and it's like, well, so... Thor is, you know, away in Vermont and does not concern us yet, okay? Uh, I think that's a fancy way of saying we are not strong enough to fight Thor. And Captain America is still not yet to be found, and the vision is Grim Reaper's responsibility. So we jump over to Captain America, and he has found the uh, derelict building from his mysterious flashback. He goes inside... And he has another flashback where um, Cap and Rick, as Bucky, got off the elevator and they're fighting Hydra guys. But then they almost get knocked out by a booby trap and they fight, fight, fight some more. And then Cap and Rick get caught up in like an anti-gravity thing that's an anti-gravity weapon that's kind of making them float in air and making them helpless. But Cap smashes it with a shield. Uh, But then the Hydra guys use a device that makes them invisible and then fight, fight, fight. 
And Cap and Rick run into a kitchen, and Cap grabs a thing of flour and throws it at the Hydra guys. So now they can see them because they're covered in flour, and it's like a Scooby-Doo episode. So fight, fight, fight. And Cap and Rick run. Uh, but then the leader of the Hydra guys hits them with a shrink ray, and then they're real small, and they're running around. And the Hydra guy, the Hydra leader is wearing a mask, and he is saying that he has convinced the Hydra cell that he is Madam Hydra somehow. He holds up like a little disc with her picture on it. I don't know how, I don't know, maybe they're super gullible. But Tiny Cap and Tiny Rick fight the Hydra leader and Cap hits the switch to revert them to normal size. And Cap uh, knocks the leader down and he unmasks them. But he's like, I can't be. And that snaps him out of his flashback. And so he's like, well, this is weird. I don't know what's going on, but I got to get out of here. So he leaves the uh, the old Hydra base. And we switch over to Vision, who's standing around in Central Park brooding some more. And the Grim Reaper shows up. And he goes, have you thought about my offer? Do you, do you want me to uh, put your body into Simon Williams's... Do you want me to put your mind in Simon Williams' body in exchange for... To, betraying the Avengers, and the Vision's like, no. And uh, Grim Reaper's like, well, what about this then? What if I lied before, and I wasn't really trying to put your body in the Simon Williams' mind. I'm trying to put your body in, put your mind in Simon Williams' body. I'm trying to put your mind in Captain America's body. And Vision's like, what are you talking about? And so Grim Reaper does some exposition. So he talks about the first time that the Avengers fought the Space Phantom, and then he explains how the Space Phantom came back and teamed up with the Grim Reaper. And we now have a retcon where we, re- we reveal that back in the Steranko issues of Cap, it wasn't really Madame Hydra that was leading the group that Cap and Rick were fighting. It was the Space Phantom disguised as Madame Hydra, I guess. And so after she seemingly died, Space Phantom took on the role of the masked Hydra leader and so everything that Cap has been flashing back to was stuff that actually really happened that he'd forgotten about and so when Cap knocked him down and went it can't be you, it was the Space Phantom it is a gnarly, gnarly panel of the Space Phantom being unmasked and I am screenshotting that right now so that I can share that with you guys on Twitter later. Hang on one second as I edit it. Very professional podcasting, I know. But anyway, there we go. Um, And so Space Fandom hit him with a stasis beam. And this is interesting because I don't know if this is a retcon or if this is filling in some blanks because the some of the later 60s cap is kind of a blank spot for me. I've read most of the Tales of Suspense cap and I've read the initial run of Cap Solo title with the sleepers, but after that it gets kind of hazy. I've read the Steranko issues two or three times um, but I'm not super clear on what's happened, but I know there was a whole thing about where everybody figured out that Captain America and Steve Rogers were the same person, so there was this whole shenanigans where Steve Rogers, you know, Cap had to pretend that Steve Rogers was dead and then he had to become this kind of person with no identity. Excuse me. So the Space Phantom here is saying he's using his technology to make the whole world forget 
that Captain America and Steve Rogers were the same person. So now Captain America's secret identity is back. And I think that's kind of filling in like a loose plot thread that got dropped. So if that's the case, great. If I'm missing something, somebody let me know. But basically, this has been a whole plot from the whole time where um, where Space Phantom's been going through all this with the whole thing with Madame Hydra and, and, and Rick back when he was Bucky just to set Cap up to be the new host for the Vision's Mind. Um, so uh, we go back to where the Grim Reaper is actually telling all this to the Vision and he's like, so, now that I've given you this information, now will you join me and betray the Avengers and become human? And the vision, it ends with a panel of the vision going, yes. So, next issue, the mind-staggering finale of the Mind War. But you guys will have to wait until next episode for that. Because I'm just doing two episodes at a time on Man Out of Time. So, it was a really fun issue. Uh, I love the Starlin art on this. The story is a little confusing um, because they it's not a real clear delineation between what's happening in the moment and what's a flashback. They don't do any kind of wobbly-wobbly panels or coloring. They do a little bit of coloring difference when it's a transition sometimes, but then they forget to other times. So if you're just flipping through it, um, you may miss it. But really fun story. Um, so that's great. Uh, next, uh, next episode on Man Out of Time, we'll wrap this one up. And then we'll probably jump back over to Captain America. All right, see you guys in just a second. And that about wraps it up for episode 13 of Sentinel of Liberty, a Captain America podcast. I hope you guys had a good time. I had a great time. I was really enjoying recording this episode. Um, the slog of fill-ins uh, between the end of the Stern and Burn run and the beginning of the De Mateus run really kind of fried my brain a little bit. I hadn't been looking forward to recording for the last couple months, but I really, really enjoyed this one, and I'm excited about what we have lined up for the near future. If you guys want to hit me up, and talk about the episode or whatever, you can always follow and like and retweet me at what would underscore cap do on Twitter. I talk about the show. I talk about whatever comics I'm reading at the moment. I talk about the comic books I read to my daughter at her bedtime. And uh, I also talk about the philosophy of what would cap do. So I'm looking forward to seeing you guys there, and I am looking forward to talking to you guys, or talking at you guys through the podcast next time. So until next time, let me leave you with the immortal words of the captain himself. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move.